Open your Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews again, chapter 10, this morning, as we draw to a conclusion the last few Sundays, as we have been in Hebrews chapter 1, and Samuel before that in Hebrews chapter 2 and 3, we want to conclude that this morning from Hebrews chapter 10, and go to the end of the story. Let's begin reading in verse 19 down through the end of the chapter. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I Will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember the former days, when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by coming becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come. And will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. Our gracious Father, again we ask for your help this morning to tie together the coming of the Messiah, the glorious salvation that he has brought the application of living life based on the full assurance that Christ is our hope and anxiously awaiting his return. Lord, help us this morning in this text. Make much of the Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen your people. We pray for the name and the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. B.B. Warfield, the great Princetonian theologian, wrote this. The glory of the incarnation is that it presents to our adoring gaze not a humanized God nor a deified man, but a true God-man. One who is all that God is and at the same time all that man is. One on whose almighty arm we can rest, and to whose human sympathy we can appeal.
This is the Lord Jesus Christ. The traditions of Christmas for most of us are now largely behind us. All of the wonderful celebrations that I hope you have all enjoyed over the past number of days. And while those traditions and while those events and those special times with friends and family are behind us, the birth of Jesus Christ, we must remember, is always present. It is always central. And it is always the driving truth behind our lives if we profess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It is the dominant reality for us that God came and dwelled with us so that God might be for us. And that, brothers and sisters, not only at Christmas, but every moment of our lives ought to be foremost in our thoughts. I think particularly at In the West and in America, even more so, Christmas can feel like a a, a bit of a ceasefire. A bit of a time when we withdraw from reality and we get lost in the wonderful traditions. Some of us feel like this time of year is a reset of sorts as we await and plan for and prepare for the year to come. And so much of what we do centers, doesn't it? On the calendar for this time of year, especially in 2020, I feel like we have all felt like let's just get to the holidays and we can enjoy some normalcy and we can retreat from the craziness of the world and spend time with our families and enjoy those wonderful memories that we make each year at this time. And yet studies show us that Depression and melancholy become a real issue for people after the holidays. There's a real letdown and a real struggle, and there really is such a thing as the post-Christmas blues when all of the loved ones go back home and when all of the reality of life begins to set back in. My hope and prayer this morning is that this text in the book of Hebrews, would chart a different path for us. That we wouldn't be lost in the doldrums and the discouragement of getting back to life as it really is. I want us as Christians, I want we as Colonial Bible Church, to have such a view of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be called to something so grand, That while we've enjoyed the weeks and the days previous, we charge into the days ahead with even greater enthusiasm because of what this text says for us. So what do we as Christians do? How do we transition now from the time of year that we've had? And again, I want this to be a helpful time this morning. It's my prayer. But how do we transition from the time that we've had into the realities of standing on the threshold of 2021 that may not look a whole lot different than 2020 did at this time in history? Between pandemics, politics, and just the regular depravity of life, I don't want you to feel as though life is bleak. For we have something greater to hope in. We have one to hope in. God in Christ was with us. God in Christ is for us. And God in Christ is known by us. And with those things in our mind, we can move forward into the new year. The writer of Hebrews begins to conclude what I would consider the largely doctrinal portion of his book at this point. And in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer to the Hebrew readers is transitioning, much as we are in these days, now into life. And how do we apply the truths that we have discovered about Jesus Christ in weeks previous to the days to come? It's the equivalent of the Navy's call on ships when you hear this. Now hear this. Now hear this. 
Every Navy seaman knows what that call means. They understand that what follows next is going to be of paramount importance. Orders will be given. Information will be disseminated that is critical to their mission and critical to their living in that moment and critical to their calling aboard that ship. It's almost as if when we reach Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 39, the writer of Hebrews stops and says, Christian, now hear this, now hear this. And we are aroused to awake. And we are aroused to think and to believe the truths that he is about to refresh our mind with and lay out once more. He is preparing these precious believers for a time of life that may not necessarily be what they would want it to be or hope it to be. But greater than these realities is the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. It reminds me, this passage does, of the humorous statement that was made by the late British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher in the opening days of Desert Storm to President George H.W. Bush. He was beginning to question some of the decisions that he had made, and in her own special way, she said to him, Now, George, this is no time to go wobbly. The writer of Hebrews is saying to us, Now, Christian, hear this. This is no time for us to go wobbly. And so I want you to see in this passage this morning, and although we have not the time to take it apart piece by piece as we would like to and normally would do in a prolonged study, but I want you to see in an overarching fashion two calls to the believer. Much like that call aboard a Navy ship. Number one, we have a call to be equipped. And secondly, we have a call to take up arms here in the text this morning. And so let's begin by looking at our call to be equipped. There is an inherent call to action in the Christian life. We don't deny that. And it really troubles me when I hear certain preachers and certain influencers within Christianity today to make it sound as if the Christian life has no imperatives to it. No, the Christian life is absolutely full of imperatives. It is not mere head knowledge that just continues to be dumped upon us without the expectation that we would do something with it. We have a living faith. We have an applicable faith. We have a faith that is to be applied in every arena of life. But those, indic- those imperatives always flow out of, like a mighty river, flowing from a reservoir of truth, of indicative truth, they flow downstream. And we do because of what we are and because of what we have. And so the first call that the writer of Hebrews gives to us in this passage is a call to know what you have, a call to drink from that reservoir, a call to be equipped If you've ever been at a lake that has a dam on it or a reservoir that is functioning as a barrier and a dam to a mighty river, you've seen the effects. All of the water that is compiled and put into one place and then channeled down that narrow chute on the other side, you've seen the force and the power of that river, haven't you? It's massive and it's mighty. Its currents are strong. Its currents are strong because the depths of the reality on the other side of that dam are deep. They're substantial. They're immeasurable. And as those truths of the depths overflow the dam and through the spillway, it forces its way downstream, carving canyons destroying things in its wake, providing nourishment. It is a mighty force 
in many respects to be dealt with. And we have had that for the previous 10 chapters in the book of Hebrews. From Hebrews chapter 1 to Hebrews chapter 10 verse 18, it has been like a floodwater spilling over. It has been uh, that deep reservoir overflowing the dam. And now what it unleashes on the other side is a current that will change our lives. As we see in Hebrews chapter 11, these truths have inspired and fueled the commitment and faith of men like Abel, like Abraham, like Noah, like Moses. Why did they do the things they did? They did the things that they did because of the things that they knew to be true. They could endure. They could push forward. They could accomplish the work of God because they were convinced of the truth of God. And they were equipped men. And so there are three arenas in which you and I this morning are equipped from Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 39. You have these things, brothers and sisters, and I, and I say this in a very real way. These are yours. These are truths that are precious and belong to you if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, you have Christ's work. Look at verse 19 and 20, would you? Therefore, brethren, he's transitioning. He's moving out of the, the doctrinal part. He has laid out all the resources. He has filled the reservoir. And now it's about to topple over the spillway. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence. Are you here this morning with confidence? Is your faith confident faith? Is it assured faith? It can be and it should be. Because that is what these truths spawn and produce in us. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence. What kind of confidence? To enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. He's concluding that based on the previous 10 chapters that show us the superiority of Jesus, brothers and sisters, you now have confidence because Christ is superior to everything else. And this is the basis of your life. The word confidence here literally means to be fearless, to have assurance, to be courageous. Brothers, since we have courage since we are fearless to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Let us do these things. Let us move forward in a certain way. The blood of Jesus that he's mentioned here has opened the way that has previously been barricaded so that no benefit could be realized by the individual who would desire to approach God. Unlike the boundaries that you remember in Exodus chapter 19, that God set up boundaries around the base of Mount Sinai, and he tells them, don't you cross the boundary, don't let your animals cross the boundary, don't anyone come near this mountain where God is dwelling, or you will die. Unlike that, the blood of Jesus has become the doorway. It has opened up access to God Himself. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what 2021 holds. Hey, did any of us know what 2020 held last year at this time? Who could have imagined, right? Just the absolute upside-down world in which we have lived over the past number of months. And just as we didn't know last year, so we don't know this year. But this we do know. That we have access into the very presence of the God who not only created all things and sustains all things, but is driving all things to their appointed end. We have no fear. Because now we have access to him. The holiest place in all of time and in all of space with all of its riches. You now can come boldly to that place through the blood of Jesus Christ. 
As Terry read for us earlier, Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 7, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. He's not the door of the world, but he is the door for the sheep. He's not the door for the goats, but he is the door for the sheep. And those who enter in by him will be what? Saved. They'll find pasture. They'll find a resting place free from the fear of wild wolves and lions at night. We come into the holy place cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And we have peace. Brothers and sisters, this is ours. The Lamb finally and forever slain has become our doorway of deliverance, our doorway into experiencing life in God, who is life himself. And we enter not in a meek and timid way, but in a bold way, so that in the year to come, we have no fear. For we have access to God himself. Our greatest problem has been solved. Don't you just find yourself in the days that we're living wanting wanting to shout that to people? Your greatest problem is not a virus. Your greatest problem is not a stimulus. Your greatest problem is your sin. And Jesus alone possesses the remedy for that sin. Not saying there aren't other problems in life, but the greatest problem Jesus has solved by giving us access to the one who gives us life. Look back in Hebrews chapter 9. Notice the portrait of Jesus that is given shortly before our passage this morning. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, do you hear that? We have something. Be equipped in this. You have rich treasures in God. And I am not talking prosperity gospel nonsense. We are talking possession of the greatest treasures, that is the forgiveness of sin, access to the Father, Belonging to the family of God. He is the high priest of the good things to come. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves. But through his own blood he entered the holy place. Once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. That is what Jesus accomplished for us. He has accomplished once and for all our salvation. Brothers and sisters, let me just remind you again what Spurgeon said. He said that he preferred not to speak merely of the gospel, but to speak of Christ, for Christ is the gospel. And Christ belongs to us by faith. He is ours and he has done this. This is not nebulous. This is real. This is true possession. Christ has entered the holy place once for all. Now when we come down to Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19. Notice that it is not only Christ entering the holy place. But we who enter the holy place with him. We're not left on the outside. We enter boldly into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Jesus has solved our greatest need. Our need to be one with our creator. The greatest problem has been solved. Our greatest problem is not the consequences of the world around us. It's not who's going to be sitting in the White House on January 21st. That may be a problem, but it is not the problem. Our greatest problem has been solved because Jesus has preceded us by his blood, by the covering of sin, into the holy place of all holy places. 
the greatest problem that we have is our sin, our rebellion against God, our pursuit of things that do not bring Him glory. The idolatry of fallen and depraved humanity in which we trust in other things other than God for our good. Ignoring the things that we have been called to do in Scripture. Those are our problems. And yet here is Christ standing and making a way into the holy place by His own blood, by His own sacrifice, by the payment that He made, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, piercing that barricade that is His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near. Let us draw near. This very morning, Christ is standing before His Father. He is before the Father, offering Himself in remembrance and constantly putting forth that blood sacrifice as the one who laid down His life for us that we might be cleansed, that we might be whole. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 18, again, from our scripture reading earlier, no one has taken it away from me, speaking of his life, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This is the commandment I received from my Father. Jesus has accomplished this. And now we are called to enter into the presence of God with Him. To dwell in the holies of holies. Let us draw near, He says. Come with me, the writer says. Indwell with me. Come into this place where God Himself resides. Brothers and sisters, our life as we enter a new year is a call to live lives based upon the real sacrifice of Jesus. To live in the presence of God, to enter boldly, to commune with God, to have fellowship with the God of creation, with the God of our salvation, knowing that through Jesus we have been forgiven and there is no shame or condemnation or guilt because His blood has covered it. There is, therefore, Romans 8, 1, now... No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the greatest news you could ever begin a new year with. No condemnation. God is no longer angry with you. In fact, not only is he not angry with you, he loves you as he loves his own son and has made you a joint heir with his son. So that all that really matters has been given to us that we might be equipped to live the lives we are called to live our needs have not stopped this world will continue to throw roadblocks in our way there will be times of suffering and times of pain and for those times we have a high priest a merciful high priest hebrews 4 verses 14 through 16 you know those well and if you don't you should memorize those Since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. As he will repeat here in Hebrews chapter 10. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Brothers and sisters, God is for you. If you are in Jesus Christ. Not only is he with us. Has been with us in the person of Christ. Is with us now in the person of the Holy Spirit. But he is for us. That we might find mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Notice again the language. We have. We have. We have. If there was a secondary message to the book of Hebrews, it would be, first of, first of all, primarily it is the superiority of Christ. But I think you could make the case in reading through the book that is what we have in Christ. 
What glorious truths. We have a Savior who has us. And has had us since before the world was created, according to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. Before the foundations of the world, God chose us in him, in Christ. And so drawing near becomes a natural reaction. When we realize what we have in God, what we have in Christ, we don't shrink back in fear. No, we approach with boldness and with assurance and with confidence and with courage. His work covers you and it keeps you above the fray and the sin of this world. Brothers and sisters, this must not merely be believed in our mind. It must be confessed with our lives and driven into the fabric of who we are as Christians. We have Christ's work. Secondly, we have Christ's body. Look at verse 24 and 25. Having confessed our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, verse 23. Now we have a tangible reality of that here and now in this place, in this church. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. How do we now live as Francis Schaeffer might have asked, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Though we are not yet physically in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, we one day will be. But until that day, because God is good and because God is gracious and because God is merciful, he has created the place where believers are to find their refuge in this life. It's not merely a place. The church is the place. He hasn't authorized other civic institutions, other clubs, other places to go and find encouragement in what we have in him. But he has given that to the church as its mission as its identity brothers and sisters when we gather together that is not essential because that is to communicate that it could be non-essential the church is foundational the church itself is the pillar of god's truth it's the ground and support of truth It's the place where we go and are strengthened in what we have in Christ. We don't treat it lightly because of what it is. It is the body of Christ for the people of God. It is the place where they are to go. For the Christian, again, we don't get into the bait of whether or not church is essential. No, it is much deeper and broader and bigger than that. It is foundational. What is essential and non-essential is built upon what is foundational. And according to the writer of Hebrews, it is foundational. And so we go and so we participate and so we help and are helped. There is no other place. This is the place. Every biblical Church, every church that is faithful to the definitions of what a church is from the word of God is the place for the people of God to assemble. In a committed way, in order to help one another live their lives for the glory of God and to realize the riches that we have in Christ together. Our common salvation, our common belonging to the family of God. Let me just say this, as life becomes more impossible. And it's going to. And the return of Jesus draws closer. And it is. You guys do realize we're one day closer today than we were yesterday. That's good news. As those two things are true and are happening, there is one place we all need to be going. To one another to the family of God, to the place, to the body of Christ, where the writer of Hebrews says, it's going to be here that you receive the encouragement that you need. 
the love that is so important both to receive and to give. This is Christ's body. Here our common faith is confessed as we are exhorted to do in verse 23. It is in the church that we confess that together. It is a powerful statement when we bind together and confess our common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The world takes notice. Our strength is here. Our encouragement is here. Our common spiritual DNA is here. Listen, brothers and sisters, if we want to be faithful to Christ, we must be faithful to his body. This is, this is the body of Christ where the nutrients, if you will, of the sacrifice of Christ are given to us through the preaching of the word, through the, through the means of grace, through the Lord's table, through baptism, through common fellowship and prayer and caring for one another. Oh, to be faithful to Christ is to be faithful to each other. What does it look like? James would tell us it looks like being hands and feet of Christ to one another. And y'all, I'm so thankful for a church that does that so well. I've seen all of you meet needs for each other and even other people outside of our church. What a blessing to see a people of God so nourished in Christ and built up in Christ. But we can't ever grow complacent with what we've been given, nor can we neglect what we've given. We must continue to pursue that above everything else. I'm not saying there's not a place for other friendships or activities outside of the church, but this must be the place where we go primarily for our spiritual nourishment and growth as we strengthen one another. What does the text say? Let us consider, again, inviting us in. Let us consider how are we going to stimulate one another to love and good deeds? How does that happen? As we are together encouraging one another, equipping one another, it's interesting, I was listening to an audio book this week detailing some of the beliefs and the writings of Karl Marx. And again, just a little aside, go down this rabbit hole for just a moment because it's important for us to be able to see this. Marxism and communism is not a economic theory. It is not political theory. It is a theological theory battle. The the whole goal is to destroy any notion of God. When you get into the writings, that is very clear. They don't hide that. they, They are very honest about what they want to accomplish. And it was interesting that Marx believed that the greatest threat to a Marxist communist advancement was the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. His direct quote was the most dangerous people were the clergy because they led the church and if they could do away with them they could do away with the church which would clear the path for the advancement of their entire agenda which I don't think we have really any concept of until you really begin to read what they taught why because the church is the body of Christ it is the end of evil because Christ is the end of evil That is not, again, a merely political or economic system. It is an evil system intent on carrying out the destruction of the knowledge of God everywhere and anywhere it can through sinful practices. But what is the church? It is the body of Christ. It is the place that is covered in the blood of Christ, according to verse 19. And it is the place where sin is remedied. As we preach the gospel of Christ, no wonder they hate that. It takes the very wind out of the sails and cuts them off at the knees. We need to be here together. We need to stay focused on Christ together. Satan's attacks are many and they are without ceasing. Therefore, the church must strengthen herself all the more. As he says, as you see the day drawing near what day? The day of Christ returned, the eschaton, the end of all things. 
As you see that day coming near, double down on your commitment to one another, to help one another, to strengthen one another in Christ. So many things are laid before us as Christians in these days. So many options that we have. So many things that we could be part of or do or neglect the church because of. But brothers and sisters, never lose sight of what grace we've been given here in this place. The work of Christ among all of us and bringing all of us together as one body. Wow. That is profound. As I've said before. We are a very diverse group of people. And I don't use diverse in the sense that the culture uses the term diverse. As if that's the thing to be sought after. But just by being who we are, we're different people. We have different likes. We have different backgrounds. We have, I mean, we're as different as night and day from each other. But we have one overarching thing that binds us together, and that is Christ. And that is what matters. That is what ultimately matters. Well, the third thing that we have is mentioned at the end of this passage Look at verse 37. We have Christ's work, we have Christ's body, and that we are given the hope of Christ's return. Look at verse 37. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Do you hear that? Jesus is coming. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, we have this great hope that Jesus is coming. There are honest challenges that we are all going to face. And it is dishonest of any preacher if he will not tell you that. Any church that won't tell you there are difficulties ahead, any podcast preacher, any author that you read who just wants you to believe everything is rosy. Well, first of all, they haven't read the Psalms, half of which are lament. But that is dishonest and that is unfaithful to the truth. We are going to have difficulties ahead. He writes about that just a few verses earlier. But when we understand this, Jesus is coming again. Hey, we'll endure that. We will, as the old gospel song says, hold the fort for I am coming. Jesus signals clear. Wave the answer back to heaven by thy grace. We will. We can hold on. We can hold on to hope because even if we die in this life, Jesus will still come and we'll come with him. The end of the story is not, you know, somebody once said that Baptists were notoriously bad because they believed that church history began with their own conversion and it ends with their death. As if the whole world revolves around them. But brothers and sisters, Jesus is coming. There's more to the story. Even if we don't live to see it, there is more to the story. Jesus is coming. Most of, throughout most of church history and around the global church today, around the world, they look at us and they find it very odd that we recoil like we do in American churches when we speak of difficulty. You go talk to people in China today that are believers. They're going to think you're a nut job if you say, no, Jesus doesn't want us to suffer. Nothing bad's going to happen. This is all going to be good. They'll say, well, either you're wrong or we're wrong because we're certainly not feeling that at the moment. The Middle East, other places where the church has, has and is being persecuted and Small and extreme measures. They understand the realities, but they are all fueled by this one great hope. Jesus is coming. They keep going because they believe this is not the end. That this life is not all there is to the story. And they keep pressing on in faithfulness. Look at verse 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith. Hey, listen, when things get tough... The tough don't get going. The tough get to believing. 
That's the reality. We live by faith at our salvation. And for the rest of our lives, we live by faith. Faith in what? Christ. Christ's work. Christ's coming. And when this happens, it yields a certain perseverance to us that will not quit. We need that in the church today. We need Christians who won't quit. Who won't run at the smallest sign of trouble. Brothers and sisters, my heart has broken this year. I can't tell you how many times as I have seen Christians run and hide under the chair or capitulate. Brothers and sisters, we ought to, of all people, persevere in the face of difficulty because of Christ's work for us, because he has promised to come for us. We need to be fortified and strengthened by these truths. That day that is approaching and drawing near in verse 25, that is the end. That is the the return of Christ. That is the fulfillment of all things. But as you get down in verse 32, you find that in former days and still days, These are the days. There has been conflict. There has been suffering. There has been tribulation and reproach. Not only as we take a stand, but as we support those who have taken a stand. Just like we see even today in Belarus when Sergei's church are there waiting at the exits of the prisons and they're trying to care for people who are being released from prison. Some of them are even being beaten and thrown into prison just for being there to care for the prisoners as they come out bloodied and hungry and ill-clothed in winter. How do we do that? We, We are persevering as we remember that Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Take heart. Sing with gusto. In fact, take your hymnals. This is a kind of an odd thing to do, but I want you to take your hymnals. Look at hymn number 224. Let me ruin your Christmas for you. Not really, because it's still a great song to sing at Christmas. Do you realize that Isaac Watts wrote this hymn? Not about the first coming of Jesus, but about the second coming. I want you to look at the words. Joy to the world. The Lord is come, not has come, but is come, is coming. Let earth receive her king. How did he come the first time? Not as a king, as a lowly babe. Was he king? Yes. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing. We know from the Old Testament and other places when Christ returns, even nature itself will acknowledge his coming. When he comes to rule and to reign, everything will be made as it should have been again. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. You see, one thing they mocked Jesus for as he died on the cross. If you're the king of the Jews, if you're a king, come down and save yourself. They didn't believe that he reigned, but when he comes back, they'll know he reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Nature itself, just as at his crucifixion, nature was moved by the death of the Son of God. The earth grew dark. There was earthquakes. Supernatural things were happening. Earth will acknowledge him again. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found. He's going to summarize all things. He's going to extend his rule and reign to every corner of the globe. And there will be no more curse. 
You can still sing it at Christmas. It still works. But just know that this is what the writer of Hebrews is encouraging these people to take hope in. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. And he will reign. We have his work. We have his body. We have his return to hope in. Now let me just quickly, and and I do mean quickly, give you the second point this morning, a call to take up arms. What do we do? What do we do? First of all, we believe. We believe. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near to the Christ who works for us, the Christ who gave us his body to dwell with us, the Christ who is coming for us. Let us draw near to him with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. The Jewish people had been made aware that Christ had come. The approach to God had been offered. And now he is calling upon them to believe. They understand that their religious systems no longer work. That the offerings that had been given by bulls and goats and rams and all of those things, they were insufficient to ultimately save. And so he calls upon them to reject those systems and instead believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we will fare no better to chase after other systems and other ideals. We too must be found in faith before the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting Him and in Him alone. All other attempts toward God are dead and useless. Christ alone offers the way to life, the way to the Father. It is defined in Him, and we must believe. We must confess what the writer confesses, that He who promised is faithful. Faithful for all time. From the councils of eternity past in Ephesians chapter 1 and other places to the promise to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, to the early Christians and us today, Christ is faithful. God is faithful. Let us be like Abraham that Josh read about this morning in Romans chapter 3 and 4. The Genesis 15, 6 talks about Abraham believed the Lord and it was reckoned or credited to him as righteousness. It's not our works. It's not our good intentions. It is simple faith in him and in his finished work for us. We must believe. Secondly, we must forsake. Notice verse 26. There must be a forsaking Involved To love Christ and to believe in Christ comes with a natural forsaking of sin. Notice what he says. For if we go on sinning willfully without regard to the sacrifice of Christ as to cheapen it in some way. After receiving the knowledge of the truth. Hey, you've heard the message. You cannot simply continue on in your sinful ways. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. That's a sobering reality for all of us. We must look at this. We must not reject Christ. We must not go on willfully sinning, either playing a pseudo game of Christianity or rejecting it outright. We must not do those things. For if we do, there will remain no more sacrifice for sin. The sin of unbelief, the sin of rejecting what Christ has done. No, we must forsake our unbelief. We must forsake our sin and run to Christ. He's not speaking of perfectionism like John Wesley might have thought. For we all stumble and we all fall. But he's talking about the willing, habitual rejection of Christ's work. And the habitual rejection of Christ's call to our own holiness after salvation. We cannot reject those calls. We must 
forsake sin. I love how Paul Washer says it. He says, people often come to him and say, hey, I have a new relationship with God. He said, my question is always, great. Do you also have a new relationship to sin? We must be willing to forsake our unbelief, the greatest of all sins. We must flee to Christ. And we must put to death, not for our salvation, but because of our salvation. Those things which dishonor the sacrifice of his son. Verse 29, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant which he, has, which was, which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? It will be a severe judgment indeed. And then we must endure. Verse 32, But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering. Endurance, endurance, endurance. Perseverance. Not in our own strength, but in the strength of being enlightened by Christ. Being changed by Christ, we will endure. Our forebears often are labeled as believing in the perseverance of the saints. And that's true. But saints only persevere because they've been preserved by the Savior. And here, with the work of Christ, by the strengthening of the body of Christ, we will be preserved by Him, and we will persevere in truth. There's a high cost for following Jesus. No doubt. Look, look at verses 32 down through the end of the chapter and then all the way through chapter 11. There is a cost to follow Jesus. Always has been. Always will be. There will be a cost to follow Jesus. But there is an infinitely higher cost to your soul for not following Jesus. Look at verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. What happens if we choose the easy road now? Destruction. Yes, it will cost us everything to follow Jesus. But if we do not, everything will be taken from us. Including things that this world cannot take. Namely, our soul. We have no choice but to, in the strength of God-given faith, persevere, not merely outlast, not merely drag our feet through, but persevere. I want you to just go back very quickly to chapter 1. Remember that glorious phrase in Hebrews chapter 1 in verse 3, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, upholding all things by the word of his power. You'll remember from last Sunday that this word does not just simply mean he's upholding everything in a static fashion. The word in Greek literally means to carry forward, to move it forward, to advance the cause and advance the troops. That's how we're called to persevere with our Savior, to continue advancing the cause of Christ. With the joy that was set before Him, let it be set before us as well. For the gospel advancing in the power of God through our lives, even though they may be tested and tried and go through difficult times, we are on the side of Him who is advancing all things by the word of his power. We cannot lose. We cannot lose. I don't care what 2021 brings about. I don't care how many new strains of the coronavirus they discover. I don't care what political upheaval occurs around the world. I don't care what great reset is inaugurated by whoever it is talking about this stuff. You and I are in Jesus Christ, and we cannot lose.
we will go forward in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel that raised him from the dead. Brothers and sisters, this is going to be a great year. It's going to be a great year because Jesus reigns. Joy to the world. The Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. We'll sing. We'll worship. We will celebrate together because of Jesus.